It's a privilege just to be with you this morning and to open God's word together. So why don't we begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you and we praise you that we can be called your people, the sheep of your pasture. Lord, we thank you that you've not only created us in your image, but Lord, you have redeemed us and you're conforming us to the image of your son, uh, restoring that great goal and the beauty and glory of your creation uh, all by your grace and Uh, by the power of your Spirit. And I pray that even this morning we'd see uh, just the the wisdom and the glory of your work in uh, not only creating a good world, but then redeeming and restoring a world that was broken and marred by sin uh, and how you're doing that work even in us. Uh, So give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to be considering all of redemptive history through the lens of the image of God and how that is, like I said, created and then ultimately restored. So to begin with, uh, what are the, the three main events, the three big phases of redemptive history? Does anybody know? Can they just shout it out? Three main uh, phases. There's creation, good. Creation, fall, and Redemption, good. And if that's totally foreign to you, these three uh, kind of phases, these three acts of redemptive history, don't worry, because now you know. Uh, And so we're going to be considering how the image of God is revealed in each phase of redemption. Uh, And when we think about man being made in the image of God, what comes to our minds? What, What does that mean? Well, it means a lot. Uh, And we'll get into the particulars later. Uh, But in the broadest sense, I think that it's safe to say that we are created to be, in some sense, like God. And we are created for God. And the Hebrew word selim for image in Genesis 1 can refer to various types of representations. It could be a painting. It could be a casted metal image. Or sometimes it even refers to an idol. Uh, It's a model that represents a greater reality. And even today, we make images of people often, not for the sake of worship, but uh, often famous athletes and celebrities. We, We make statues of very important people. And what's the purpose of those statues, those images? Well, they're created as a tribute to that person. It's created to honor that person and In the broadest sense, humanity was created for that purpose, as a representation of the glory of God, to honor him. God created us to be, in one sense, these living statues who reflect his likeness. Of course, not in our physical form, but in our character, in our virtue, in our acts, and even our relationships with one another. And as we'll see later, God says, be fruitful and fill the earth, multiply, so that earth would be absolutely full of these billions of living statues, all reflecting and manifesting the glory of God. But how does that work? What does it mean in particular to be made in God's image? Uh, Well, most theologians have thought in two kinds of categories. We have structural and functional. So in structural, there's things like the fact that we have reason 
And we're rational beings. We are, have moral capacities. Uh, we, are, we have a volition. We have the ability to make decisions. Uh, things like this. Uh, also that we have emotions. But also there's this functional aspect that we're created to worship God. We're created to love others. We're created to rule over creation and exercise dominion. Uh, and some theologians would emphasize the structural aspects of who we are uh, and how we are made, while others would emphasize the, the functional aspects of what we do. But both of these, but I, I think we need to recognize both, both who we are and what we are called to do as image bearers of God. But I would argue that the structural aspects of who we are is really secondary to the functional aspects of what we are called to do. So God gave humanity certain gifts and graces, not as an ends in and of themselves, but as a means to an end so that we could live in relationship with him as ones who bear his likeness, that we can live in relationship with one another, and that we can rule over creation as his image bearers. So let's begin Genesis 1.28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the heavens and over the livestock and all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So just from Genesis 1, uh, there are some things we learn about the image of God. And it's interesting to know that God said, let us make man in our likeness. And most theologians are reluctant to say this is a sure proof of the Trinity, but it is an indication that there's a reality beyond just a solitary unity in God. It points to a reality that there's a fellowship, there's a community within the Godhead. And that same reality is reflected in the way that God creates us. Just as there is plurality and community within the Godhead, we read in verse 27, so God created man in his own image, singular. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God created him, male and female, he created them. So structurally, God created humanity as both male and female. There is an inherent plurality, inherent community that God intends in his creation of us as image bearers. And later, of course, God says that it's not good for man to be alone. And so he makes Eve. We see that from the beginning, humanity was created for community. And everywhere you look, whether in this academic world or wherever it might be, you find people saying that humans are social beings. We need community. And everyone sees that reality evidenced before us and all the negative effects, for example, during COVID and lockdowns. And, and people conclude, well, this is the result of an evolutionary process and the way things developed. No, man is communal because we are made in the image of a communal God. And this is really spectacular when you stop to think about it, that loving, serving, and relating to one another is inherent to the eternal nature of our God. This 
perfect fellowship of the Trinity that has existed from all eternity between Father, Son, and Spirit, perfectly loving one another, delighting in one another, serving one another. And, and just think about it. If sinful people like ourselves, who are finite, can have such strong feelings of affection and love and devotion and even delight in other sinful, finite beings, what must the fellowship of a perfect God be as an infinite God who loves an infinitely lovely person in the Father, in the Son, in the Spirit. And realize that reflecting the beauty and the glory of that inter-Trinitarian love between the Father, Son, and the Spirit is precisely what we are called to do as those made in His image. The image of God is not just what we are, but it tells us about our purpose the end for which we were created. Living in loving community as relational beings, even as Father, Son, and Spirit live in a loving community with one another. So God is relational. Let us make man in our likeness. And we, as those made in His image, are created also to be relational beings who live in community with one another. But there's another piece that we see here in Genesis 1. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Notice that the first thing that follows God's decree to create man in his image is that man is then given dominion over creation. Let them have dominion over the seas and the heavens and the earth. And it's pretty obvious and emphatic in Scripture throughout all the rest of Scripture that God is a God who rules and reigns over His creation. God is kingly. God exercises dominion in the most absolute sense. And while, of course, God maintains that absolute dominion and authority over all things, yet we see in creation that God entrusts Man, with both the ability and the responsibility to rule over his creation. God is the owner, and God has made man, in some sense, the regional manager over this little plot of the universe called Earth. And he has entrusted it to Adam's care as the head of humanity. And again, this is breathtaking. Not only has God given us the gifts and the graces in order to do this, but this is a task with with which man is charged. Man is called to rule over creation, exercising dominion, not just according to his own whims and pleasures, but in the perfect accordance with the wisdom and the goodness and the righteousness of God. Man's dominion is emphasized again, There we go. In verse 28, God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So man is meant to rule as appointed kings who do God's will. And man is supposed to spread out and subdue the earth and such that the earth becomes a mirror image of heaven, as man exercises dominion as one made in his image. And isn't this even what we see reflected in the Lord's prayer? Your kingdom come, 
Your will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. That is, in some sense, a reflection of the marching orders given to Adam to, to make heaven a beautiful garden, subdued such that it reflects the beauty and the glory of heaven even on earth. And so there's these functional things that man is called to that we see in Genesis. And it's just implicit that man is made with reason. He has volition. He can make choices. He's a moral being. And the point of these structural aspects of the image of God in man is so that he can do things like rule over creation, live in loving community with one another, and of course, worship God as one who's made to reflect God's glory. And we should also note in verse 28, it says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And then in verse 31, of course, God says that he saw everything that he had made and it was what? Very good. The very first thing that God does after creating man is he blesses him. God looks at humanity and says, this is good. And while it's not immoral or wrong to be simply finite and limited, we need to understand that being sinful is not something that's inherent to humanity. It's not something that's inherent to being made in the image of God. To err is not to be human. To err is part of the fall. That's not what God's original creation was uh, intended for. Uh, so man was made in the state of innocence and integrity uh, with God's blessing upon him, and it was good. Uh, and this is just a tiny bit of what we see in God's creation of, of man as made in his image. Uh, so that's the, the first act in, in the overarching narrative, the story of Scripture. We have creation of this good world. But as we all know, that doesn't last very long, does it? Uh, so after creation, what comes next? Fall. And so the serpent deceives Eve. She eats. She gives to Adam. And what happens immediately after? Genesis 3.7 says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And man... And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. So there's a lot here, but, but just in an overview, uh, we see that the mind is corrupted by wrongfully attained knowledge. The goodness of emotions is perverted such that they immediately feel shame and guilt. The purity of their relationship with one another is immediately, immediately lost, and they are estranged and alienated from God. So immediately, all these things, these functional aspects of the, the way that man was created and what we were created to do is lost. Why? Because sin enters the world. And certainly, this is the emphasis of chapter 3, uh, verse 9, they hide themselves from the presence of God. Verse 10, they're afraid of God's presence. Uh, their communion and fellowship with God is lost. And, and ultimately, in verse 24, uh, God banishes them from the Garden of Eden. And then we go on, and, and we see what happens in the following chapters of Genesis. Chapter 4, what happens? 
Cain murders Abel. Man is hostile towards one another. Genesis 6, there's a flood. Man is so sinful and perverse that instead of subduing the creation, quite literally, the creation subdues all of humanity except for eight people. Genesis 6, 5 says, just in, in summary, so now we are in the fall. Now we are in the time of corruption and perversion. And we, we read, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And you might say, well, maybe that was just that generation. It was just really bad. But you read on, and you get to Genesis 8. And it says, When the Lord God the Lord smelled a pleasing aroma. The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. That is a general statement that God is making concerning human nature. The image of God, which has now been marred and, and corrupted through sin. You get to Genesis 11, uh, the Tower of, of Babel. Then they said, come, Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now remember, what was God's charge for Adam in creation? For them to multiply, to fill the earth. And now what are they doing in Genesis 11? They're gathering together and say, lest we be spread out, lest we would be dispersed and let us make a name for ourselves. Man was created for the glory of God. And now in Genesis 11, they're doing the exact opposite of everything they were created to do. So just within Genesis 3 to 11, we see how fast and how far humanity falls. Brother is murdering brother. Gross sexual perversion. God wipes out humanity because it's so wicked. He starts over with Noah. He makes a new covenant. But if you know the story, Noah gets drunk. Uh, His son exposes his shame. Descendants turn out to be no different than their ancestors. Humanity is morally bankrupt. Uh, And yet, what's remarkable is in the midst of all this perversion and corruption in in Genesis 4 to 11, is that we still read in Genesis 9, 6, that whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, For God made man in his own image. And so there's lots of dispute about what exactly it means and doesn't mean in a post-fall world. But we see that clearly, even though the image of God has been marred and corrupted, there's still a very real sense in which the image of God is preserved in humanity. Uh, Calvin said it this way, Uh, Although we grant that the image of God was not utterly effaced and destroyed in him, it was, however, so corrupted that anything which remains is in fearful deformity. Or another theologian, Anthony Hokma, said, After man had fallen into sin, however, he retained the image of God in the structural or broader sense, but lost it in the functional or narrow sense. That is to say, fallen humanity still possesses the gifts and the capacities with which God has endowed him, but they now use these gifts in sinful and disobedient ways. What makes sin so serious is precisely the fact that man is now using God-given, God-imaging powers and gifts to do things that are an affront to 
his maker. Do you see how ugly that is? That God has given us intellectual capacities so far beyond the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. And yet instead of using that intellect and those power, those gifts to glorify him and honor him and for the extension of his kingdom, it's used to suppress the truth in unrighteousness and to justify sin. Many of the most intelligent people use their intelligence to denounce God. God gives us a will by which we can make decisions that are intended to honor him and bring glory to him. And yet, man uses that will to defy God and to rebel against him. God gives us emotions so that we can rejoice in him, to love him, to revere him. And instead, man uses those emotions to delight in created things rather than the creator, to love idols and sin. And this is why sin is so sinful and perverse, because we've been given so much, and then we, as those made in God's image, use it for sinful purposes. And I trust you are a well-taught congregation, so you know how the Old Testament goes. God makes a covenant with Noah, but he fails. He makes a covenant with the patriarchs, They fail. He makes a covenant with the nation of Israel as a whole. They fail. The judges fail. The kings fail. Eventually, David comes, this great king, and David fails. The regathered Israelites with a new temple, they fail. And no matter how many opportunities God gives, it doesn't matter because sin renders man incapable of fulfilling the created and intended purpose of reflecting and imaging God in in his glory and in his goodness. So not only does man fail to worship God in spirit and in truth, not only do we fail to serve one another in loving community, but we also learn more explicitly from the New Testament that that dominion that was given to Adam to rule over creation is in large part forfeited to Satan. For example, we read in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, uh, in their case, speaking about unbelievers, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. The God of this world. That's Paul speaking about Satan. Jesus himself calls Satan the ruler of this world. And this is why, in, in some sense, when we get to Matthew 4 and the temptation, Satan can in some sense, legitimately offer Jesus dominion and and the glory of the nations. Matthew 4 says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And initially we might think, well, how can Satan offer Jesus, the creator of everything, dominion or the glory of the nations? How can he give Jesus these things? Well, I think it's partially because through the fall, Satan usurped that which was given to Adam. And even though it's limited and partial, he has a legitimate claim on the world. And he can, in some temporary and partial sense, say, Jesus, if you worship me now, I'll give you everything. 
I'll give you authority and dominion. Because he had usurped that from man. And man had forfeited that in his rebellion against God. And Satan saying, you don't have to suffer. You don't have to endure the cross. You can have it all now. And isn't that what sin always is? The temptation to have what the good things that God intends to give, but have them immediately, have them now, without the way that God has intended to give them. And so there is some sense in which Satan can really offer this to Jesus because he really does, in some sense, have immediate dominion that he exercises as the God of this world, the ruler of this world, as Jesus says. And we could spend a lot more time detailing all the ways that the image of God is distorted in us. And, you know, Romans 3, there's no one righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks God. This is all the fallout of sin. All have turned aside and, and become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Colossians 1.21 says that we are alienated from God, hostile in mind and deed. Uh, one last one, Romans 8, 7 and 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So there's abundant testimony in both the narrative of Scripture and the explicit doctrinal passages of Scripture concerning the sinfulness of man and the effects of the image of God being lost in us. And yet, even though it's so marred and corrupted, we still see the sense in Genesis 9-6 that we retain, we're still made in the image of God. And so this is the condition of God's once good world and now a post-sin world. Man is alienated from God. Man is alienated from one another. Man is, has abdicated his role from ro- ruling over creation as God's appointed king in his image, entrusted with authority. And now we hearken back to the overarching narrative of Scripture. What, what are the three phases? We, we've gone through creation, this good world, fall into the corruption and the perversion of the image of God in man. And now, what? Redemption, the good news. Praise the Lord. And what we see in redemption is that God is restoring the image of God that was lost through sin. And I might even be so bold as to say that when rightly understood, that this is the main thing that God is doing in all the storyline of Scripture. He is glorifying himself, not only through rescuing creation, but restoring the beauty and the glory of his creation. And so how does he do it? Well, he sends his own son to do what humanity has so consistently failed to do. And so throughout all Scripture, we have these failed images of God, which is often portrayed as failed the sons of God. Luke calls Adam the son of God in his genealogy of Jesus. But of course, Adam, as we've discussed, fails to be the image of God that he was created to be, and he fails to be the son that bears the likeness of the father. In Exodus, God tells Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Well, Israel fails to fulfill that calling as the son. The kings were singled out 
in the nation of Israel to execute justice, to be God's representatives of the kingdom of Israel. But they all fail, even David. And this is why the Davidic covenant looks forward to a king who would be greater than David. And throughout the Old Testament, we see it's a son. So David, 2 Samuel 17, these are just highlights here. It says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Or the classic Messianic Psalm 2, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And now Jesus comes as the true Son of God, the true King, the true image of God. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. See how Paul links those two together? The, the Son who accurately and faithfully reveals the Father, who shares the likeness of His Father. He is the image of the invisible God. And Hebrews 1.3 says that He is the radiance of the glory of God, the firstborn of all creation. Again, we see how those are linked together, image and, and sonship. And so Jesus does everything that we should have done. Jesus perfectly reflects the glory of the Father as the true image of God. But He doesn't just do it merely as God. He does it as a man. And He does it for man. He does it as our new representative with a real human nature, subject to all the pains and all the weaknesses that we feel. He's tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. And so again, we see these parallels in Scripture that the authors of Scripture would have us to see. That Adam fails when tempted by Satan, but the better Adam resists Satan. Israel is tested in the wilderness for 40 years with hunger and thirst, but they don't trust God. Rather, they complain and they grumble But Jesus is tested in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights with hunger and thirst. And he succeeds where Israel fails. And you might be thinking, oh, Sam, are you just making this up? Are you just seeing these things? But listen to Deuteronomy 8. This is recounting and summarizing Israel's time in the wilderness. And it says, You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And now what is the text that Jesus quotes when he's being tempted in the wilderness with hunger and thirst? This one. It's written that man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Matthew, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is showing us that Jesus is the true firstborn of God. He is the true image of God, who is doing what Israel so consistently failed to do. And for the sake of time, I just need to skip ahead. But Jesus does what... Humanity corporately hasn't, and what we individually couldn't and wouldn't. He perfectly loves his neighbor. 
He perfectly upholds justice and righteousness. There is never a single moment of his life that's tinned with with the selfish corruption that we know so well, or condescending arrogance, or even selfish impatience. Never a moment where he doubted his father's wisdom or goodness. He came to do the father's will, and he did it perfectly. Christ is the ideal son who perfectly images and reflects the glory of God as man was supposed to do. And yet, instead of receiving blessing as the obedient son, what happens? Christ receives the curse of our rebellion. And Hebrews chapters 2 and 3 is so rich in this, but I'm just going to pick up on Hebrews 2, 14 to 17. Since therefore... The children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of these same things. Why? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. So Christ comes, Christ fulfills the law, he defeats Satan, he suffers for sin, and he conquers death. And this is the key point, that he does it all as a man and for man. He had to be made like us in every respect so that he could be our representative. True image of God, true man. Adam forfeited life, blessing, and dominion. And so Christ comes as a man to reclaim through his death life, to reclaim blessing through his cursing, and to reclaim dominion through subjection. And now, what is God doing in redemption? He's restoring that image in us as the younger brothers of Christ, as the children of God. A text I trust you are all familiar with, Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, what? What is he predestining us to? To be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So what is the goal of predestination? It is that we might be conformed to the image of the Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, that there might be this huge family, and that we all share in the family resemblance of God's likeness and his glory. That's just the... Genesis 1.28, being reclaimed in redemption. A world of image bearers who share the likeness and the glory of God. And Paul draws us out in 1 Corinthians 15. I don't have it up, but just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so shall we bear the image of the man of heaven. And there's just so many good, rich verses here in the New Testament. 1 John 3.2, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. Being remade in the likeness of Christ 
is not only the end game of glorification, which it is, but it's the primary work of sanctification until he comes. Look at Ephesians 4, Paul just working out all the glorious aspects of salvation in chapters 1 to 3, and then we get to, okay, so what for us? In chapter 4, and he tells us, to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And this is something that we're exhorted to, that we're commanded to every day, to put on the new self being created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Colossians 3.10, a parallel passage. You have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So what is the very sum and substance of sanctification? It is for the image of God, which was lost through sin, to be restored in Christ. True righteousness, true holiness. And one more text on, on sanctification that I can't leave out. 2 Corinthians 3.18 We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So again, what is God doing in redemption? He is restoring the image of God in humanity through Christ. In this life, it's something that happens slowly but surely. How? As we behold the glory of Christ revealed in the gospel. And we grow in the knowledge of his manifold wisdom and glory and goodness and perfections. And as we behold him, scripture says we are transformed into that same image. We learn to think God's thoughts after him. Our emotions are transformed. We, we feel affections and emotions that are rightly ordered in accordance with knowledge and righteousness in accordance with God's holy values. Instead of being our choices being dictated by the passions of our flesh and being subject to what we want and just the, the passions of our flesh each day, we become led by the Spirit, governed by His movement in our hearts and minds. And when the substance of the true image of God is restored in us, then we begin to function properly as imagers of God. We are enabled to love one another selflessly, like we are created to do, reflecting that relationship between the Father and the Son of perfect love, of service, and delight in one another. We're able to worship God truly. We're able to exercise dominion, authority over creation righteously instead of selfishly and sinfully. Listen to uh, Jesus' prayer in, in John 17. Jesus is interceding for the disciples. And he says, I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Uh, and that, that unity that Christ is praying for is something that is intended to start within 
the new covenant community of the church in this life, and it's fulfilled in the age to come, such that everything that was lost in the fall, all the enmity and the hostility and the strife, all that is restored in glory. Unity with one another, being with Christ, seeing his glory restored to fullness of fellowship. Uh, And it's amazing that we're invited. Christ is inviting us to participate in this life of in relationship between the Father and the Son and Spirit, even as we reflect it in our own relationships. Uh, And lastly, we see time and time again in the New Testament that glory is not a place where we just sit on the clouds playing harps, but we're actually ruling and reigning with Christ. And so these are the promises that Christ makes to the church in Laodicea, the church in Thyatira, uh, these mixed bag churches, and yet he says, the one who conquers, who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And even more mind-boggling, he says, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, even as I, I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. So one day Christ will come back and we will be made like him because we'll see him as he is. We'll be conformed to his image such that we'll be able to image God faithfully, fulfilling our original purpose as we worship God in spirit and truth, as we love one another in community, and as we rule with Christ over the new creation, sitting down with Christ on his throne as he sat on his Father's throne. Uh, So there's so much uh, that could be said. I really didn't give myself enough time for applications. Just draw a a few very brief points out. We know that every person is made in the image of God. And even after the corruption of sin and the entrance after the fall, we still bear that image. And therefore, it's incumbent upon us to treat every person with dignity and value, regardless of ethnicity or age or even things like sexual identity, gender, all this, regardless of the corruption of sin, they're still made in the image of God. And therefore, we ought to treat them with dignity and value and kindness. On the other hand, we realize that because sin has so deeply marred the image of God and distorted it, that nothing can restore that except a supernatural work of God that comes by the Spirit. And that means tricks and gimmicks or whatever other little things we might do in church, that's not going to be sufficient. It might get people in a building, but it's not going to restore the image of God in anyone. The only thing that is going to restore the image of God is beholding the glory of Christ revealed in the gospel. And so we must, must be faithful as we love people and care for them to preach the gospel because that's the only thing that saves. It's the only thing that redeems humanity and restores them as image bearers of God. And lastly, we need 
to recognize the priority of sanctification in our own lives. Being conformed to the image of Christ is what God is doing in us. This is the great restoration project by which God intends to glorify himself. Actually, this is the last one. See the hope that we have. God has begun this work in us, and he will bring it to completion. All that sin has ruined, all the corruption that is in our own hearts, all the things that burden us today as we battle with the the ugliness in our own souls, that will one day be eradicated once and for all. You'll be set free from all the bondage that you experience to sin or the struggle and the fight will be made like him because we will see him as he is. We'll worship him in spirit and truth. We're going to love one another with perfect relationships. All the difficulties that you experience in your marriage and family and even in church life, all of that will be belong to the former age. It will be done. It will be perfect community, perfect loving each other, perfect worshiping of God without any corruption of sin. And we're going to inherit the new creation. We're going to rule with Christ. So I just encourage you. You are destined for glory. Be of good cheer. Whatever you're experiencing today, and whatever even the ugliness you might see in your own hearts, we have hope. Our our Lord is a mighty Redeemer, and He's a Savior, and He's going to restore in us that which we've lost through sin. Um, So I'll pray, and then we have a few minutes, so if we have any questions, we can... Take those. Uh, Father, we thank you so much that you are sovereign, that you are able, that you are powerful, that you are able to do all the things that we cannot do. We thank you that in your grace and in your mercy, you sent your Son to redeem us from the sin and the entanglement that we have found ourselves in. So, Lord, we, we pray that we'd be diligent every day to put on the new self which is being created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Uh, we thank you that, that Christ is our great victor who succeeds in all the ways that, that we have failed. Uh, we thank you for this grace that we have received in him. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.